continuing in our Summer Fruit series again this afternoon. And we come to the subject of goodness. <clears throat> and as we read the list in Galatians 5 of the fruit of the Spirit, there are some of the words, which I think I said last time when we talked about kindness, that you read and they just kind of feel a bit bland in our English contemporary understanding of them. And goodness is another of those words that we kind of read and it's a bit of a kind of bland nothingness kind of word in some ways. It just sort of feels a bit like meh, like goodness. Like what are we even really talking about? But the Greek word that's translated goodness from that passage is actually a very rich word. It, it means an uprightness of heart and life, and it carries a sense of being goodness for the benefit of others, not goodness simply for the sake of being virtuous. So it's not just about being a, a kind of virtuous good person, but the word itself contains a sense of it being for the benefit of others, about giving of yourself for the good of others, for the benefit of those around you. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Goodness is holiness in action. It's a life of action that's motivated by a desire to please God and bless others. That's, that's what goodness is about. And I think one of the best pictures of what that kind of goodness looks like in practice is found in the book of Romans, chapter 12. And so that's where we're going to base ourselves today. So if you want to open your Bibles to Romans, chapter 12, if you've got Bibles, open them or turn them on. Uh, it will come up on the screen for you to read along. Uh, but that's where we're going to go. So what we'll do is we'll read the passage together, we'll pray, and then we'll work our way through this great description of goodness in the life of the Christian. So here we go, Romans 12, starting at verse 9 through to verse 21. We read this. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, actually, that your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide bone from marrow. Lord, your word is insightful and incisive. It speaks right to the very heart of who we are. Lord, I pray that you would help us to receive your word with joy this afternoon. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people whose hearts are ready to receive from you and ready to respond to you. God, if there are things out of this passage this afternoon that that mean we need to do business with you, that mean we need to come and find repentance again and forgiveness again, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to do that. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who is truly good in every single respect. Lord, would you grow this fruit of goodness in us this afternoon for your glory, we pray. Amen. Good. What a stunning passage, eh? Like you read it and you think, man, it's a compelling way to live. Like if, if you were to live out all of those things, <laughs> I think it would be a very attractive, very compelling way to live your life. Is words written by the Apostle Paul to the, the Roman church, instructions for how they were to, to be together, how were they to live out the Christian life. And actually the first chunk of it is primarily about their relationships with one another in the church. The, the phrase one another that's in there, he's, he's writing to a church and he's saying to them, guys, this is about how you relate to others in the church community, in the body of Christ. Then a bit later, he kind of broadens the scope out. We'll get there when we get there uh, to look at those outside of the church. But his focus primarily to begin with is those within the household of God. And, and so we need to have that in mind as we read this too. So Paul begins by saying, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. This is the first place that goodness is supposed to be outworked in the life of the Christian and expressed is in the church family, in wholehearted devotion to one another. A sincere love, without hypocrisy, without pretense. It means it's not like I love you when we're together and I badmouth you behind your back or moan about you. Oh, I've done it again. Flipping heck. Like, when will they learn? No, 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 no. It's wholehearted, sincere, no hypocrisy, no masks, no pretense. Love for one another in the church community. It's the first place goodness is supposed to be expressed for the Christian. The love that we have for one another in the church as we cling on to Jesus, is a love that means humbly putting others first. That's what he says. He says, honor one another above yourselves. Like, that's not easy. But it's how Christ 
has loved us. It's the kind of love we've received in him. That he humbled himself to death on the cross on our behalf. And he asks us to love as we've been loved. To imitate that to one another. To look for ways that we can serve instead of being served. I guess I, I just want to challenge you as we read this together. Like, what, what are you looking for more? When we gather on a Sunday, in the week when you see one another, when you think about life group, are you looking for it to meet your needs or ways in which it may serve you? Or are you thinking, I've been called to put others first, to humbly prefer them? And, and so I, I want to know, Lord, how could I serve? How could I bless? What can I contribute to this instead of just what can I get out of it? It continues, never be lacking in zeal. It literally means don't be lazy in zeal. <laughs> it's like stir up your passion. Don't be lazy in it. Don't be complacent. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. There's so much here. This is so rich. This could be a whole series in itself. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Paul says, God's word says to us, stir it up. Stay passionate about God. Enjoy your relationship with him. Delight in him. And let the hope you have in Jesus cause such a joy to well up in your heart that it means you can endure the most difficult affliction. Because you know that this life isn't it. Your hope is rooted in eternity with Christ in God. He says, joyful in hope, patient in affliction. When our hope is set on him, when our joy is rooted in him and what he's done, <laughs> and the certainty of eternity with him, when it's not based on the ups and downs of this life, the roller coaster of experiences that we go through, then it enables us to be patient and endure through trials. Faithful in prayer, bringing everything to him. And sharing with others in the church, local and global, who are in need. This sincere, familial devotion that Paul is talking about and exhorting God's people to and exhorting us to. This wholehearted love and preferring one another and putting one another's needs before our own means sharing with others. And, and again, the, the English doesn't really serve us very well because this word share doesn't just mean possessions and money. Like it, it can mean that, and it's right that we should meet physical, practical needs where we see them. That's entirely appropriate. That's consistent with the teaching of Scripture. Right? So much so that in the New Testament church, that was the norm. And actually, we read in the early part of Acts, as the early church is formed, that people gave so wholeheartedly that there were no needy among them. In fact, we read that people sold land and property and possessions in order that others in the church community might have their needs met. And so it certainly is appropriate for us to think of possessions and finances when we think of sharing with those in need. 
But actually, this word share goes beyond material provision. It goes beyond that. Actually, it implies joining them in their suffering, partaking of their sufferings, like getting into their situation with them. Not standing aloof and throwing money at a problem and hoping that it fixes it. It's easy to do that, isn't it? I think we live in a very materialistic, comfortable society, by and large, around here. And, and, and most of us, actually, are pretty comfortable. Uh, on the global scene, we're all very comfortable, even the worst off of us. And I think sometimes that can be easy when we think of meeting need or sharing with people in their need to think of kind of, well, what can, like, we, we can give something. And actually, this picture is one of us getting alongside people in their need, being with them, walking with them, seeking to understand what's going on for them, praying for them, listening to them, walking with them through the challenge. This is what Christ has done for us, isn't it? He didn't stay in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He came. He came into our suffering. He came into our brokenness. He shared in our suffering (laughs) that we might share in his victory. And we're called then to practice hospitality, to open our homes, to welcome people in. Now this is really interesting. So Oregon of Alexandria an early church father. He's like an early church theologian and scholar. He's one of the earliest kind of real heavyweight writers we have uh, beyond the authors of the, the New Testament scriptures themselves. In commentary on Romans, he says that this word hospitality and, and actually this picture that Paul is painting here means that we're not simply to welcome people when they come to us, uh, but that we are to actively look for ways to invite people in. He said this. This has obviously been translated into modern English, uh, which he wasn't speaking. But he said, we're not just to receive a stranger when he comes to us, but actually to inquire after and look carefully for strangers to pursue them and search them out everywhere, lest perchance somewhere they may sit in the streets or lie without a roof over their heads. Whew. This is the call of God on his people. This is what goodness looks like lived out. To share with people in their need. To actively pursue and welcome the least and the lost and the last into our lives and into our homes and into relationship with Christ. A loving, selfless, passionate, joyful, hope-filled, 
prayerful, compassionate, hospitable people. That's what Paul has been writing about. If you take this first couple of paragraphs and you were to summarize it, that's what he's been saying. He's saying, this is what the church is supposed to look like, guys. This is what your lives are supposed to be marked by. You should be a loving, selfless, passionate, joyful, hope-filled, prayerful, compassionate, hospitable people. And we're not done yet. Because Paul continues his letter to the Romans. And he, he now begins to broaden out his view a bit. We read from verse 14. He says, bless those who persecute you. <laughs> this is actually where it begins to get really difficult. Like, none of the other bits are easy, but <laughs> I tell you what, they're easier than this stuff. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. We like to think that this next bit sounds easy, but I think when we're honest and we drill down into it, it's not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. These instructions are still focused primarily, actually, on how we relate to one another in the church. This picture of goodness lived out needs to be evidenced within the family of God before it is anywhere else. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, they'll know you're my disciples by what? By your love for one another. That's what this is all about. That people would look on the way we relate to one another and the way we respond to one another in the church and see this incredible, deep, forgiving love, preferring one another, honoring one another, love. And they would go, wow, <laughs> like, <laughs> that's not normal. <laughs> like, there's something about you as a family of people that is different. They'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Love across boundaries, love across differences, love across divides, love that doesn't see one person as better or higher or more deserving than another. Associate with low, lowly people, Paul says. Like, how do you do at that? Like, two people come in. One of a kind of higher social status and one of a, a lower, do you treat them the same? With the same dignity? With the same love? You welcome them in the same way? We should do. This is what he's getting at. We find that challenge actually in the book of James, <laughs> laid down to us as God's people, about how we receive people. And it's important that we hear it. It's important we remember actually his coming to us. The king of heaven stepped down to associate with us, to identify with us, actually to call us brothers, family, his own, his dearly beloved. But also, and I think when we 
treat people differently based on externals, when we treat people differently based on kind of social markers, we use the world's measure instead of God's. And we need to remember Genesis 1. See, every single human being on this planet is created in the image of God. Created as an image bearer of the creator. Loved by him. Made to be loved. It's, the, it's actually the foundation of human dignity, the foundation of human rights. Is this idea that we are image bearers of God. We remember. We love people because he first loved us. As if we truly lived this stuff out, people would sit up and take notice. Like they would. I think it would make the Christian faith seem a whole lot more compelling to people if we really live like this. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. You know, sometimes people, even within the church, can wound us. Remember, he, at the moment, primarily has in focus relationships within the church. When they do, how do we respond? Our call is to bless them, to pray for their good. Paul fleshes this out a bit more. As he instructs, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Like, sounds lovely, doesn't it? Like we, I think that's quite a, like people like that passage. They're like, oh yeah. And, I, and that's some of what it means to, to share with those in need, to mourn with those who mourn, to get alongside them, to join, to partake of their experience. It sounds lovely, but if you put it in the context of blessing those who persecute you and where people have wounded you, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, all of a sudden it becomes a whole lot more difficult. There are some things that stop us from living it out. I think to begin with, some of the things that stop us from living it out, that stop us from rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn, actually to begin with can be quite innocuous. So I think sometimes we're just too busy living our own lives to really know what's going on in the life of someone else to rejoice or mourn with them. I think sometimes we can be so absorbed with our own busyness with our own desires, with our own life, that we don't really know what's going on in order that we might rejoice or mourn with others. And that's not how it's supposed to be in the church, guys. We're family. If we're actually going to rejoice and mourn with one another, then we need to foster close enough relationships to know when people are rejoicing and mourning. We need to foster close enough relationships that we actually know what's going on. That's why we have life groups. That's why they're not supposed to be just a Wednesday evening meeting. (laughs) But a set of relationships within a church family where we foster deep community that we are able to rejoice and mourn with one another. 
But there are other barriers to us rejoicing and mourning too. Insecurity or feeling we need to prove ourselves or craving others' approval or even resentment and unforgiveness. See, if we are craving the approval of others or we feel insecure, then the fruit of that actually is is envy or belittling others, belittling their accomplishments. It's hard to rejoice with others when you're jealous of them. (laughs) So instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, you look for ways to belittle their accomplishments or tear them down. And on the flip side, we can end up celebrating or rejoicing in others' misfortune because it somehow makes us feel better when we feel insecure. But also, if we're harboring resentment or unforgiveness, instead of blessing those who persecute us, actually we can rejoice when things go badly for them and mourn when they're rejoicing because our contentment becomes based on and tied to them and our relationship with them. And just an example from my own life, I went through an experience a few years ago where someone had hurt me um, quite seriously. It was a painful time. <laughs> and actually, out of that, I harbored for some time unforgiveness towards him. And some months down the line, I, I, to be honest, I thought I'd got through it. And some months down the line, the wheels came off for him. And, and several things went seriously wrong for him. And to my shame, instead of responding with compassion, and instead of mourning with him, I, I, actually, I, I actually felt glad that things had gone wrong for him. I responded with condemnation on his situation. I felt like he was getting what he deserved. There was a sense of justice. My response was ugly. I was pleased that things were going badly for him. I wanted things to go badly for him. I don't know if you've ever had a similar experience or felt a similar set of emotions when something's gone well or badly for someone else. It's not how it's supposed to be. I had to do business with God over it. I had to repent of my attitude. I had to come back again and, and get to a place of forgiveness for him. And I also needed to remind myself of the gospel. This is the solution. When we can't rejoice with those who rejoice or mourn with those who mourn because of insecurity or envy or resentment. Remembering and delighting in the goodness of God leads us to grow in goodness towards others. See, when we 
realize what he's done for us. It's not of our earning or deserving. It's not based on our works so that we have nothing to boast in, but it's a gift of God. And actually, there's incredible security to be found there. Which does away with rivalry and jealousy. Because we're secure. Our security isn't based in what people think of us. It's not based on how much we have or don't have compared with someone else. Rivalry is... It melts away when we find security in what Christ has done for us. When it's rooted in who he is and what he's done at the cross. When we're secure in him. When we're not trying to build our security on other things. It's incredibly liberating. We can celebrate other success without feeling threatened in any way. Because... Our identity isn't in what we have or don't have or what we've accomplished or not accomplished. Our identity is in him. And so it's secure. And when we remember how he's forgiven us, how he moved towards us in love, when we were far off from him in our sin, then we find ourselves unable any longer to hold on to unforgiveness towards others. Honestly, like when you... Take time to remember again his kindness towards you. When you even for a moment begin to think of the gravity of your sin and the depths of his love that he hasn't treated you according to your sins, but he's extended forgiveness and he's welcomed you in, then you'll find it impossible to harbor unforgiveness against others. So we've got to keep coming back to this. Before he finishes, Paul drills this down just a bit further. Saying this from verse 17, he says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul continues on this theme of not repaying wrong for wrong, evil for evil. This is about how we respond to others, in particular those who would oppose us or be our enemies? People who wish us harm in the way they speak to us or about us, in the way they treat us. Instead of responding in kind, we're supposed to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. As far as it depends on us, if at all possible, live at peace with others. This is interesting. When people oppose you, when people have your worst at heart, we're supposed to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Now, this 
could sound on the surface like the, the ultimate people pleasers. Couldn't it? It's like the ultimate people pleasers first. Do what's right in the eyes of everybody. It's like try and do what everybody thinks is right. That's not what's going on here. It doesn't mean to do what is right as they define it. It means doing what is truly right before everyone, in, in front of their eyes, in their view. That's what's being communicated here. It means do what is truly right as God defines it. Or in other words, practice goodness in full view of everyone. Don't repay evil for evil. Instead, practice goodness in full view of everyone. See that your public behavior is above criticism, that it's not hypocritical. Live at peace as far as possible. Don't go looking for arguments. Now, these instructions aren't about compromise in terms of being faithful to God and his word. Notice that. It's like practice goodness. Do what's right in God's eyes in full view of everyone. Okay? So this isn't about compromise in terms of being faithful to God and his word. And that's why Paul qualifies it, doesn't he, when he talks about living at peace. Notice what he says. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, it's not possible to live at peace with everybody. Some people just want to pick a fight. You don't have to fight back, but some people it's not possible to live at peace with. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, the other way in which it's not possible to live at peace with some people is that some people will condition peace with them on you being disobedient to God. And if your peace with someone is contingent on disobedience to God, then you cannot be at peace with them as a Christian. That isn't real goodness. That's not practicing goodness before everyone. If being at peace with people means calling what's evil good and what's good evil, then that's not good. You know, the Bible's clear, actually, we read in Timothy. The days are coming when the world will celebrate what's evil as good and what's good as evil. And I, I think we see that. When we read Scripture and we see how God intended for us to live, we look at many things increasingly in society. I think even recently, I don't want to, we've not got time to get too into it, but even recently around uh, abortion legislation and, and rights to abortion and access to abortion in America and how that's been responded to even in this country um, where people see actually the right and access and free access to have an abortion as good rather than the killing of a human unborn child as evil. See, we live in a world that celebrates what's evil as good and would call what's good evil. (laughs) 
if being at peace with someone is conditioned by them on being disobedient to God or celebrating what's evil as good, then you cannot be at peace with them. And we have to be reconciled to that as Christians. For that is not real goodness. And what does it look like to put the fruit of goodness on display in front of others? This is where it bites, right? Paul says, he quotes from Proverbs, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. (laughs) It's like, don't just be civil towards him. If your enemy is hungry, your enemy, the one who opposes you, the one who wants your harm, if he's hungry, feed him. Truly seek the welfare of your enemies. Seek their highest good. It's an interesting quote from the proverb. It says about heaping burning coals on their head. And I think sometimes, like, I've heard people talk about this and be like, oh, like it really makes them suffer, like really chews them up. Kind of, if they've been horrible to you and then you're really nice to them, oh, it's like it really, you know, it's like torture for them. That's not the sense that's being conveyed here. It's actually out of a desire for their good. It's a desire that they would come to repentance it's a desire that they, would, that they would, in a sense, feel a kind of shame that they've done evil to you and in response, instead of treating them in kind, that you have done good, that you have sought their best. But the idea and the, the sense that's being communicated is that actually as they feel that it would bring them to a place of repentance, it would open their eyes to the goodness of God. Go, wow, like you haven't treated me the way I probably deserve. You didn't respond to me the way I've been to you. It would speak to them of the love of God and bring them to a place of repentance. This is really powerful. So our desire for our enemies, for those who have done us evil, should ultimately be repentance and faith. Like our, our desire, even for our worst enemy, our longing and prayer, even for our worst enemy, is that they would come to a place of repentance and faith and peace with Jesus. That they would experience the joy of forgiveness just as we have done. Because it's not on our merit, is it? It's his grace. We don't deserve his kindness. Yet he extends it. And our prayer and our longing for our enemies should be that they find the same. That just as we have found mercy, so they would find mercy. Just as we have found freedom, so they would find freedom. Just as we've known forgiveness, so they would know forgiveness. This is how he is towards us. How can we do that? Like, what allows us to love in that way? Well, firstly, remembering the gospel, reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for us. And then secondly, Paul gives us one other thing. And that's that we can rest in the fact that God is truly just. 
We can respond in love to our enemies and not seek retaliation or retribution or to pay them back in any way when we rest in the fact that God is truly, fully just. And the fact that God is just means that in the end, nobody gets away with anything. We need to hear that, and we need to know it. In the end, nobody gets away with anything. I will repay, says the Lord. Repay for what? Repay in judgment for sin. All sin. Your sin, my sin, their sin must be paid for. Scripture is very clear. The wages of sin is death. And either sins have been paid for by Christ at the cross, or they will be judged and payment demanded when Christ returns. For those who hope in Jesus, (laughs) your sins have been dealt with. If your trust is in Christ, your sins have been dealt with. Justice has been served. Christ fully absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf at the cross. The punishment that you deserved was meted out on him that you might go free. punishment that I deserved, that I earned for myself with my sins, was poured out on Christ Jesus. He willingly took on himself. Stunning. It's amazing. But for those who persist in sin, for those who continue in evil, for those who continue to reject God, then judgment will come. And his ultimate judgment is far worse than any petty retaliation that you might meter out upon your enemies. Yeah? Like you, if someone does you wrong, you might think, oh, I'm going to get them back. No, God says, no. Do them good. Seek their welfare. Feed them if they're hungry. Pray for them that they might come to repentance because the judgment that is coming for them is far beyond your comprehension. Guys, hell is real and it's serious. You don't want that even for your worst enemies. Trust me. And so we pray that God would have mercy, that they would come to their senses and come to a place of repentance. But we rest too, knowing that it's not down to us to punish their sins. Harboring bitterness and anger just chews you up. It's very releasing and good for us to trust them to God. As crazy as it might seem, goodness means praying for your enemies 
to come to a place of repentance and then celebrating when they do. Rejoice with those who rejoice. This is how he has treated us. And it's how he calls us to treat one another. This is how he has treated us. And it's how he calls us to treat one another. I want to pray for us, and then I'm going to invite Dave to lead us in communion.